and so when you get to above a certain temperature, things like fans don't do it. Things like fans will exacerbate the heat. So if facilities who don't have AC are coming in and, and, and saying, well, we do these other mechanisms to help people cool themselves, that might not cut it. That, that could actually exacerbate the effects of these extreme temperatures. Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. According to a Pew Research Center report based on data collected by the federal judiciary, only 2% of federal criminal defendants go to trial, and most who do are pronounced guilty. Almost 80,000 people were defendants in criminal cases in fiscal 2018, but 90% of them pleaded guilty instead. In 8% of cases, the charges were dismissed. Most of the defendants who went to trial were found guilty by either a judge or jury. If they want, defendants can waive their right to a jury trial. The rarer trials have become, the more common guilty pleas have become. In 1998, the amount of federal criminal defendants who entered guilty pleas was 82%. 20 years later, the figure was 90%. Guilty pleas increased in absolute numbers also, from 56,000 in 1998 to over 71,000 in 2018. Nevada is now the 26th state to mandate the recording of suspects' interrogations. All federal law enforcement agencies, including the FBI, are required to tape interviews of suspects. The practice prevents wrongful convictions by deterring coercive questioning, which can lead to false admissions of guilt, and by alerting investigators, judges, and juries if suspects have a mental illness or other problems that might make them give false confessions. More than 150 people assembled in front of the Philadelphia Police Headquarters to protest the Facebook posts of police officers. Protesters were responding to the Plain View Project, a database of public Facebook posts and comments made by current and former police officers. The Plain View Project cataloged hundreds of racist and offensive Facebook comments made by police officers in eight jurisdictions, including Philadelphia. The database highlighted about 330 active Philadelphia police officers whose Facebook posts were biased, dehumanizing, or supportive of violence. Protesters outside the Philadelphia police headquarters chanted off the streets and demanded that the 330 active city police who made the racist or offensive posts be removed from street duty or taken off the force. So far, only 10 of the 330 Philadelphia police have been benched. Starting on July 1st, Jewish groups have launched a movement against ICE detention centers under the slogan, Never Again is Now. This movement builds on recent efforts to put immigrant detention centers in historical context, alongside other legal spaces of exception meant to hold, isolate, or kill people marginalized by the state, including in the Nazi concentration camps. 
At the beginning of the month, 36 people were arrested at a blockade at an ICE facility in New Jersey. And in the following week, demonstrations took the streets in Boston, Philadelphia, and other cities. On July 5th, hundreds of Jewish people blocked the streets in San Francisco, demanding close the camps. This was a statement released by organizers. Quote, As Jews, we have grown up with the phrase never again seared into our memories. We have been taught to never let anything like the Holocaust happen again. From our many Jewish histories of detention, violence, and migration all over the world, we know that we've seen this before. But the legacies of violence, white supremacy, detention, and genocide are alive and well in our communities. Now, as we see widespread separation of families, detention of children in horrific conditions, and adults and children dying at the border as they attempt to leave violence and instability created largely by our own country's foreign policies, we refuse to wait to see what happens next. When we say never again, we mean it. We know that the current crisis is nothing new in this country, and we know that the crisis is not contained to the border. It is happening in communities across the country as our neighbors are terrorized by ICE raids and by increasingly violent rhetoric from the mouths of this country's leaders. Until our politicians take drastic action to shut down ICE and to create safe conditions for people seeking safety, we must make it impossible for ICE to do business as usual." Unquote. Led by African-American students, the Harvard University Prison Divestment Campaign is urging the university to divest from the prison industrial complex. According to the students, the Harvard administration is hostile to resolving concerns about the university endowment's large investment in mass incarceration. The campaign asserts that at least $3 million of Harvard's $39 billion endowment are devoted to the prison industrial complex. Since the students know the details of only a small portion of the endowment, $425 million, they stress that Harvard might be profiting even more from the industry. Harvard University is connected to private prison operators including Core Civic NGO Group, companies that run so-called detention centers where immigrants are subject to human rights violations. The university is also connected to an insurance company which, through the bail bonds industry, keeps poor people incarcerated because they can't afford to post bail. The Dignity for Incarcerated Women Act, which requires that incarcerated women are given free access to hygiene products, was signed into law in Florida. The law is intended to prevent abuse, which women incarcerated in Lowell Prison reported to the Miami Herald in 2015. The women in Lowell told the Herald that they were forced to exchange sacks for soap, toilet paper, and sanitary napkins. Florida Representative Chevron Jones said, women are the fastest growing prison population in this country, and yet the treatment they receive and conditions in which they are housed is shameful. Jones also said that health and hygiene products should not be used as a bargaining chip that is only accessible to those who can afford it. campaign to fight toxic prisons released the following statement, urging people to call in to demand the safety of prisoners who are in the path of Tropical Storm Barry. Their press release is as follows, quote, As Tropical Storm Barry threatens Louisiana, Mississippi, and Texas, over 65,000 people behind prison bars and in detention centers lie directly in its path with no ability to evacuate. Please call in to make sure that people locked down are moved out of harm's way. 
we need your help applying pressure to ensure that the horrors that happened at FCI Beaumont during Hurricane Harvey don't happen again. Note, FCI Beaumont is in the projected path of Barry. This tactic proved effective last year when we forced North Carolina and Virginia to evacuate prisons ahead of Hurricane Florence. The demands. One, immediate evacuation of all prisoners from every prison. Two, stockpiling of water and food at every facility. Keep them talking, ask questions, get details, email Fight Toxic Prisons. If you can, record the phone call and email it to us. If it turns out they're lying, we'll have voice recorded evidence. You can email ftpdisasterprep at gmail.com and include Barry and the department you called in the email title. Also, we don't trust any Department of Corrections. Per Jailhouse Lawyers Speaks advice, quote, if you know any prisoners in this storm path, it's important to tell them to fill up any containers or bags with water now. Prisons are notorious for not giving adequate drinking water to prisoners, if any at all, after the water is contaminated, unquote. Fight Toxic Prisons also suggests tweeting at institutions, such as Louisiana Department of Corrections. You can tweet at at Louisiana underscore DOC, Mississippi Department of Corrections. Tweet at at MS underscore MDOC, Texas Department of Criminal Justice. They say you can tweet at at TDCJ. ICE Immigrant Detention Centers. You can tweet at ICEGOV. You can also tweet the Federal Bureau of Prisons. Tweet at the Justice Department. That's DEPT. We have two updates since this call. We have two updates since this call-in campaign began. Fight Toxic Prisons gives these two updates, saying, quote, "We have a voice recording of a Louisiana DOC employee claiming that Louisiana prisons are being evacuated. The truth of this remains to be seen. Press them for details." Additionally, we've gotten word that the TDCJ Office of Incident Management is deciding whether to evacuate or stockpile water and food at East Texas prisons. We have a voice recording of them claiming, quote, Texas is not even in the cone anymore, unquote. The National Hurricane Center still shows East Texas within the outer edge of Barry's wind and rain zones. This is still an extremely dangerous situation if power and water goes out and they do not have water and food stockpiled, unquote. We'll have the contact information and phone numbers on our website, kitelineradio.noblogs.org, or you can check out the Fight Toxic Prisons website, fighttoxicprisons.wordpress.com. Prisons are at the forefront of climate change. Some say that there is no population more captive to the effects of global warming than the incarcerated. And given the huge concentration of Black and Latinx prisoners in America, this is a classic case of environmental injustice, as these consequences fall widely upon prisoners of color. We know of several examples of fatal hyperthermia, excessive body temperature. There have been at least 23 prisoners to die this way in Texas since 1998. Prisons that bake dangerously in the heat are dotted across the American South, but are now found in even cooler states such as Wisconsin, with experts warning that inmates face increasingly deadly risks as global temperatures rise. Texas is a frequent example cited where we know that prisoners in the state have already had to deal with temperatures of more than 100 degrees Fahrenheit, with human-driven climate breakdowns set to push the average temperature up by as much as 5 degrees Fahrenheit within 30 years. Currently, 75 out of the 104 state-run prisons in Texas do not have air conditioning, and the TDCJ has said that it would need to spend $1.2 billion to remedy the situation. 
A new study from Columbia Law School's Sabine Center for Climate Change Law focuses on the extreme heat effects from a destabilized climate, effects that are already turning some prisons into virtual microwaves, where prisoners bake between metal walls and bars with little air conditioning relief. Some courts have already ruled that extreme heat conditions in prisons qualify as cruel and unusual punishment, which is unconstitutional. And others have argued in court that, for prisoners with heat-exacerbated illnesses, it's also a violation of the Americans with Disabilities Act. The American Association for Advancement Science writes on how climate change also influences human conflict, saying, Another common consequence of heat in prisons has implications for both health and security of inmates and correctional officers alike. The potential for increased violence, fighting among inmates, and assault incidents may increase when high temperatures cut tempers short. This week, we share an interview with Julie, a researcher who studies the effects of climate change on prisons. The conversation was held at last month's Fight Toxic Prisons Conference and focused on her work on how intensifying extremes of heat and cold impacts prisoners' health. As this interview is broadcast, a hurricane is bearing down on Louisiana, threatening severe flooding after a season of already extreme rain events. Poor people and people of color will be disproportionately affected, as many live in municipalities and New Orleans neighborhoods with weaker defenses. The same people already suffer disproportionately from imprisonment. But this weekend, these two structural vulnerabilities will be combined, as prisoners in many jails and prisons risk being left behind during the storm and subsequent flooding. This is why we just shared the call to action made by Fight Toxic Prisons, urging supporters to call in on behalf of these prisoners. Vulnerability to chronic and acute crises linked to the greenhouse effect is not the only intersection between prisons and climate change. The many indigenous water protectors who remain in prison after the movement at Standing Rock also remind us that the state's repressive mechanisms are on hand to defend the very industries that are driving the climate crisis and burying our future. Even with the heavy toll of repression in prison, water protectors continue to prepare to stop pipelines, as for example with the Line 3 in Minnesota. The persistence of prisoners' struggles and indigenous land defense movements, even among the rising waters and escalating temperatures, demonstrates the way out of the climate crisis. Here's Julie. So my name is Julie Scara. I am a PhD student out at Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island. Yeah, so I study epidemiology, and and uh, epidemiology is basically population health. So there's a big part of epidemiology is occupational epidemiology or environmental epi, and, and this is when we look at how environmental exposures or occupational exposures, where you work or where you live, how that may influence your health and health outcomes, um, maybe the diseases you develop. So it, it really ties to prisons because this is the environment where people are kept in, where they uh, live, work 24-7, how might things in those facilities or just the atmosphere of that facility influence the health outcomes of, of the people who live there um, and also maybe the people who work there. So correctional officers, wardens, um, how are other people affected by, by these systems outside of the people who are, are physically held there. And so maybe I'll talk about what I'm specifically studying and it's basically how there might be an increased exposure to extreme temperatures while you're incarcerated. So within the field of environmental epi, there's been a lot of research on how 
exposures to extreme temperatures, um, kind of these short intervals, uh, increase not only deaths, but also illnesses, so cardiovascular disease, liver diseases. When, you, when you're in these in, in incarcerated facilities, because so many of them are, there's a lot of old infrastructure. I think out in Rhode Island, we have a, a prison. Our um, maximum security prison was built in the 1800s, I want to say 1870 or so. So if you can kind of imagine the upkeep of that and, and where things might be lacking. So it doesn't have air conditioning. And it is mainly stone and and kind of these old materials that really contain heat. So how people who are living there when it, when it's hot outside and how that temperature then influences the temperature inside and may even increase it. How people who are living there might have increased exposures to extreme temperatures. And conversely, these old infrastructures that may not be well upkept might have problems in the winter with. Uh, containing heat, containing whatever heat system is is being used. So in Rhode Island this past winter, the ACLU did file a lawsuit against the prison because um, people were dealing with uh, extremely cold conditions. Um, And I just want to clarify, when I talk about extreme temperatures, so I mean, if you live in Florida and you're used to a certain temperature range, which is generally hotter, um, and you kind of acclimate to that, and that's fine. But if you have one day that, that spikes, so maybe you're used to kind of living in 80, 90 degree weather, and then suddenly it gets up to 100 one day, that's, that's where that extreme exposure kind of comes in, and that's um, what influences health and, and health outcomes. And a lot of that has to do with access as well, so like access to AC, access to water, or tools to, to cool yourself down, taking extra showers, all of that. And so when you get to above a certain temperature, things like fans don't do it. Things like fans will exacerbate the heat. So if facilities who don't have AC are coming in and, and, and saying, well, we do these other mechanisms to help people cool themselves, that might not cut it. That, that could actually exacerbate the effects of these extreme temperatures. Uh, so I think, so, th- so this is what I focus on right now um, and how people across the country might be dealing with this and how it could be affecting their health. When I talk about increases in uh, illnesses or deaths related to extreme temperature, that can happen through heat, like heat exhaustion, heat stroke. So, so these are ways that our bodies do respond directly to heat, like a, a disease directly related to heat that, that we can point to and be like, okay, the, the, that is a clear way that exposure to extreme temperature causes this illness. But then what we're finding is through epidemiology that there, there are diseases that aren't heat stroke, that aren't uh, heat exhaustion, but are still happening because of the exposure to this extreme temperature. A great example is cardiovascular disease. And, and so this is where prisons might think, oh, well, we don't have a heat problem that this person is suffering from a cardiovascular illness. Okay, well, well that illness is exacerbated by the effects of heat or, or potentially even being um, caused in a sense, depending on, on how the body is handling it. So right now there's very limited statistics out there on how many people are really affected by heat because usually when these facilities, whether run by private or state or the federal government, have a case, they're going to mark it as, oh, that was maybe someone had a heart attack. So that was like a heart attack, not a heat stroke. There aren't any formal statistics out there, but on the whole, they're they're generally smaller because heat stroke and dying from heat exhaustion is relatively rare. And so what I'm doing is looking at people who had these events on 
particularly hot days. And so why um, maybe a kidney failure that happened on a hot day is because of the hot day and not because if, if they happened to pass away, it wasn't because of the kidney failure. It was because of this exposure to extreme heat. Same with extreme cold. So extreme cold also exacerbates uh, the onset of certain diseases. And so there are extreme things like hypothermia, which is rare, and, and um, luckily we don't have a lot of people that die from that, but um, in the same way that extreme heat can exacerbate the onset of, of heart attacks, so can extreme cold. And so if someone uh, happens to suffer from a, a, a heart attack in a, in a prison, and that's what the people who work there, maybe the doctor marks that the person had a a heart attack, and I'm going to tie in this temperature data and see if, if it happened on a cold day. Maybe it's because of that. And, and so maybe these are the ways that living in a prison facility or an incarceration setting are exacerbating exposure to extreme temperatures, which is then having an effect on people's health. And I think it's important for people inside to, to be aware. And within that, there, there are certain groups that are more vulnerable to these effects. People who might be on medications that uh, affect how their body regulates temperature. People who are older, age is a risk factor for practically every disease. And when you're in, in an incarceration setting, I think um, you're put in a lot of daily stresses that you don't encounter on the outside that uh, makes your body age a bit faster than had you been living on the outside. And people who are living on the inside might already be aware of these things and, and how being incarcerated impacts their health and how exposure to these extreme temperatures impacts their health. And and my research is going to be one like the first kind of national study on this topic, um, but I'm hoping to use it as uh, a way for people who are dealing with these conditions on the inside as, as leverage, as proof to show that these exposures are having a substantial impact on their well-being, um, potentially violating the Eighth Amendment, where they can't be subject to cruel and unusual punishment. So maybe people on the inside are, are already aware of this, but I think people on the outside, maybe we think of Okay, so people are incarcerated, but that doesn't mean they need to be subject to cruel and unusual punishment. And, and and where does that come from? So maybe people who don't who don't deal with the incarceration system on a daily basis, or this isn't part of something they hear about a lot. Maybe they think, oh well, all prisons are air conditioned. That's just a given. And unfortunately, that's not true. So in Texas, like imagine living in Texas, right? It's hot most of the year. What they they have like hundred degree days or so in throughout the summer. Seventy five percent of the prisons in Texas are not air conditioned. So, on top of that, you're in this facility that's designed to hold in heat. How does that exacerbate those those temperatures? And it and it significantly does. There have been. Um, when they record the heat in prisons, I mean, we get up to 150, 160 degrees uh, of a heat index. Living in that, I mean, that is could could be uh, seen as cruel and unusual punishment. Like, there's no reason. I mean, imagine if um, that was someone you you knew. 
Well, I've been doing this. I've been going through a, a law database, Westlaw, kind of compiling all lawsuits related to this. And there have been quite a number of lawsuits over the past decade or so, about a thousand related to this topic, as well as other conditions as well, just conditions of confinement. There are a lot of horror stories out there. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if there's case examples in every state. So maybe we think of this as a problem that happens in the, in the South, but in, in Massachusetts and Norfolk, there um, Cedar Junction Prison, as well as the Massachusetts Norfolk Prison last summer, 2018, Temperatures reached about 120 degrees inside, and multiple people had heat strokes. Luckily, as of now, no one no one had passed away. But I mean, that's going to have some long term impacts on on their health. That's out east, maybe where where we don't typically think of uh, being exposed to extreme temperatures like we would in the south. Similar things in Michigan as well. Uh, in in Illinois, there was the Southern Correctional Institution of Michigan. They, in, in 2006, almost all of the um, people who were, were held in their facility were suffering from heat exhaustion. Um, at least one person died. And eventually a lawsuit went forward where the, the prison either had to incorporate or install air conditioning, which they then deemed was too expensive, and eventually they closed the facility. Which is now like a national park if you want to visit for some reason. I think just just recognizing that this is a, a big health burden for people living there. I mean, yeah, there there are horror stories. There's uh, a prison out in Arizona that used to just be an outdoor like tent campsite. Luckily, that that got shut down a few years ago, but there was no air conditioning out there. Like they had like one small cooling station, but who in Arizona is expected to live outdoors all the time? Like, why people... How can we expect that people are not call that cruel and unusual punishment? But these, these are the lived experiences of so many people, and this probably isn't news to them. Maybe getting people information um, who have to deal with these conditions about how it affects their health and what maybe they can do to, to watch out for it or, or know maybe they're going to be pretty vulnerable to the effects of extreme temperature and, and so that they can keep that in mind. The cases I'm looking at, they're in the last 15 years or so. Climate change is happening uh, and temperatures have increased in that time, but maybe regardless of climate change, this is still happening. But I think it's going to get so much more intense. It's going to get so much more extreme. And by, by focusing on preventing this now, how, how many people can we help their health in the future? Yeah, just to say climate change is the reality. Extreme temperature exposure is going to get way, way more worse. So I think keeping that in the back of our minds um, while understanding that this is a lived experience right now and people are already suffering from it and... Um, the more we can do now to prevent this, gonna gonna help further in the future in magnitudes that we probably can't even comprehend right now. This has been KiteLine. 
Anyone can reach us via our P.O. Box, Kite Line Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. You can hear previous episodes of our show at wfhb.org forward slash kiteline. For more information on the stories we air on KiteLine, check out kitelineradio.noblogs.org. If you or someone you care about has been affected by the prison system, you can call us to be interviewed or to record a message to be played on the air at 812-269-2512. We also want your feedback and to share your story. Feel free to write us at kiteline at wfhb.org. You can follow KiteLine Radio on all social media platforms. If you want to support our work, you can find us at patreon.com forward slash KiteLine Radio Show. Any funds raised beyond operating costs will be sent to folks on the inside. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Please join us every Friday for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our community. Thank you for listening.